Today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Hello and happy Monday. So, uh, hello to you, Dan. Hey, Buzz, another week. Another week, but uh, we're getting some clarity. The foggy picture of what Congress is going to look like is starting to clarify a little bit more. The big red wave, it turned out waving goodbye to Mitch McConnell's leadership for the next two years at least. So <laughs> I was going to ask you if you watched. It's uh, a little red wave. Watched any television, saw what happened. I actually watched more than usual in order to just get those results. And um, uh, yeah, flipping back and forth from uh, from one network to another. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw I was there live and in color when, uh, when it was confirmed that, uh, in fact, um, we had uh, uh, won the Senate, at least uh, the majority of the Senate. It's going to no. be 50 plus uh, the vice president who can break ties, but we all want to see that Warnock win over Herschel Walker on December. Does that make it more or less likely now that the Democrats have won it? What do you mean? Uh, the fact that the Democrats have the 50th vote in the Senate, does it make it more or less likely that they can win in Georgia, or does it not change it I at all? I don't even understand what the, why that question... Well, I mean, is, is it... Tell me why it would make it more and why it would make it less. Well, maybe the Democrats are going to put less money into the race, uh, given that now they've already captured 50th. They could kind of take a back seat, maybe because uh, the Democratic candidate in running for Senate in Georgia is... is Maybe going to do fewer stops or less energetic, given that the Democrats have already. Well, I think he'll still be at it. He emails me every day, that's for sure. But uh, <laughs> but I think that you know we have to um, remember that there are at least at a minimum of seventy two um, uh, candidates for the federal bench and for various positions in the administration that are um, going to have to be confirmed by advice and consent by the Senate. And so if Joe Manchin, who is almost an anti-environmentalist in some regards, um, is not to be an obstructionist um, successfully, then what we have to do is win that Georgia seat mm. so that we are basically Manchin-proof, right? Mm. And had you won one more, like in Ohio or Wisconsin, mm -hmm. could change the whole ballgame if Democrats had 52. I know, and it's scary because in 2024, like, you know... Uh, there are some really good candidates, yeah. Democrats, who's who are going to be running for office, and Montana. we have to cross our fingers and hope for a successful two years to set up the stage for yet another another win like this. Was really terrific. Um, but I, yeah, I, and, and we don't. Do we know anything more this afternoon? I've been busy um, about what's the happening house? with the House seats. Mm, no, but I think the Republicans are about. Six or seven seats to yeah. two, two eighteen. That's how it was this morning. Yeah, and the Democrats have about fourteen. So yeah. nothing major has changed, but they're still counting votes in California. And yeah, I think there's one seat that was called for Democrats. Yeah, so it might uh, be thirteen. Can, can I add? It could end up. They were predicting over the weekend two seventeen, two seventeen, with the uh, race in Alaska being the two eighteenth uh, decision, either for Democrats or Republicans. But Which Sarah Palin lost. Uh, did she lose? She was lost. it her race? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's oh. been declared that it's she's lost. It's been declared. Lost. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because they have the ranked choice voting. There were four candidates, and it was... Yeah. Oh. I think she lost like 48% to 27%, yeah. and then... But anyway. Oh. But do you, do you hear that sound? That is the sound of the Connecticut River. And with us is Carl Meyer, the uh, member of Society of Environmental Journalists. He's written hundreds of essays and op-eds and articles uh, on issues involving the Connecticut River, and he's been an intervener and a fish and aquatic studies team member in the current FERC licensing process since 2012. Um, Carl lives in Greenfield, and he is a frequent visitor with us in the studio. We're always, we're always going to sit back and listen carefully and learn from Carl. Hello, Carl. Hi, Buzz. Hi, Happy Dan. Monday to you. Happy Monday to both of you, and thanks for the uh, for the update on on the elections. We're we're 
our heads, our nose is above water. At this point. <laughs> That's a good metaphor. So, um, we can still breathe. Yes. So the Connecticut River, think about a long process. 2012 was when the, uh, the original Federal Energy Regulatory Commission relicensing process began for the Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Station. The deadliest machine, the drop-dead, direct deadliest machine ever installed in this river system. It was supposed to be a five-year process. That would have brought us to 2018. They started a little bit early that year. It goes on, and that's a double-edged sword because the company that owns it keeps making money while nothing changes in our The company, so here's some players that listeners should know about, First Light and ISO. Could you tell us about those companies? Let's talk about the two companies. First Light Power is actually, and this, this really sort of gets to me when the reporting comes out, is owned by Canadian venture capital giant public sector pension investments, a 20-plus billion giant venture capital uh, firm in Canada with offices in Toronto and London and I don't know where else, maybe Tokyo. I'm not positive. They came here in 2016. The third owners of Northfield in, uh, in the last 20 years bought the place up for, for short money, I think 2.3, 2.6 billion it used to sell for higher. While we were already uh, four years into the relicensing process, right? It's a venture capital investment that they are doing. Two years later, they turned around and, and re uh, and and they turned around and put it into a limited liability corporation in Delaware. Okay, so we're not even getting state taxes on this monster. Um, but Northfield Mountain, and I'll, we'll get to ISO a little bit later in the show. I think there's another piece of this. But Northfield Mountain basically is a buy low, sell high, energy squandering monster that virtually kills everything. There's no expectation of survival for anything that goes up Northfield Mountain from fish eggs to adult fish. And this thing at 15,000 cubic feet per second, imagine seven, eight, Three-bedroom homes, that's how many they swallow per second. So think of 60 of those per minute. How many of those in an hour? Is that, tw- is that 28, 28 2,800? It's, it's too mind-boggling for me. But All what? those fish houses, everything in it, there's no expectation. You go up Northfield, you go through the turbines, you come back down. Nothing survives. They've been doing this since 1972. First on nuclear power, today on energy-scorching natural gas, which is the main ingredient in the ISO New England power grid. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but this is something that the public has never Well, I just about. want to summarize what, in using your words, in what you've told me before, they reverse the current of the Connecticut River. The river goes in reverse, defies gravity, yes. goes through this process, and kills anything that happens to be in the water. Absolutely, and, that's, and that has been going on for generations. So the basically. Connecticut River, which rivals the Mississippi, is the East Coast Great it's a, it's River. A, it's, a, it's a mid-size river. It's, you know, it's not a, a huge river, but, but it's a middle size. It's, it is New England's watershed. It's a four-state river system, and it's part of the Conti, Silvio Conti, National Fish and Wildlife Refuge, the critical central artery. When this thing pumps, and they generally suck at night when the energy is cheap, right? There's energy on the grid that's cheaper. They suck the river backwards. So few people have ever sort of had the experience. But the first inkling I got was from a guy named Boyd Kennard, who's who's been uh, who was a longtime sturgeon and fish researcher on the Connecticut for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service then uh, for the U.S. Geological Survey. And he said one time he was fishing underneath the French King Bridge with his young son at the time. And all of a sudden, you know, he's looking for bass, and all of a sudden he finds his little boat going upstream during the day. He goes, and at a pretty good clip. Not often that they're sucking the river. But I got to tell you, during during the drought this year, the miserable drought of late July and, and into August, when there was just about no water coming downstream. Into the, it's called natural routed flow, all that water that comes in on the, on the feeder streams and the tributaries. It was down to 1,610 cubic feet per second, right? And this is measured about three miles below 
um, Turnus Falls Dam. So you got the water, all the water coming down from Vermont and New Hampshire, including the Israel at the Miller's River. All the water coming out of Cabot and what's left in the river. And it even includes what's coming in from the mouth of the Deerfield, a little bit of it. So 1610 for days was all that was, was sort of pouring into this big 20-mile basin that Northfield and Turner's Falls holds back. And they get to suck that river up at 15,000 cubic feet per second. That's 10 times as much flow as going into it. You're sucking out of it. And that's all the fish, all those juvenile fish from all sorts of species, not just the migratory shad and blueback herring. Um, you know, it, it's just a criminal, <laughs> criminal money-making enterprise. Well, environmentalist Carl Meyer and journalist... Um, this must be a really good piece of news because we must be getting a whole lot of energy generated as a result of this, right? Hydro energy, good stuff, right? Oh, my God. They are a net loss. They are a grid parasite. They consume, I think the last thing I saw was uh, they gave, you know, they give pumping statistics and generating statistics. And I can't remember the, the difference for this year was, was 20 something percent. But then you have to f figure in that that energy, the initial energy, has got to come from where? Pennsylvania, Canada, Seabrook, a little bit of juice from Seabrook, uh, a couple of, we still have millstone plants, but mostly it's coming from natural gas. You're sucking that in to pump a river upstream. And then you got hydro. Most of the hydro people in New England have no idea is almost all of it comes from Canada. Hydro-Quebec, all right? Some of it comes across from Niagara Falls, New York State. So, I mean, this thing has just been running on... On, on running on empty, and uh, that's how you make money. That's how they make their money. Are you suggesting that all that this really does is benefit the investors? I'm, su I'm suggesting that about 90% of, of what happens at Northfield does, and this thing is so amazingly damaging. I mean, talk about 15,000 cubic feet per second. Um, at times, you're talking about a minimum of three miles being pulled backwards toward Northfield Mountain under conditions that are not uncommon on the river. This, and, and this thing pumps daily. And at times when it spits back out through the turbines, it also pushes the, the river north of Northfield back towards Vermont and New Hampshire. So it does that. And that, those, are, those aren't even the full parameters. They only had to do studies that were like three kilometers long. So this was, you know, five kilometers long. So you get three miles out of that. I mean, it is the most brutal and the most hidden piece of machinery that's ever been on the river. What would you say, quickly, to somebody who says, but it doesn't uh, emit CO2 emissions and it's clean energy? What, what, the, what is the, natural gas is, is an incredible climate scorcher. And, no, I mean the hydroelectric and, power. And green, the hydro, the, this is what they're calling it, Right. It is a gas plant. It is, mm. it is a net loss gas plant. And green, if you kill everything, you're decarbonizing an actual ecosystem by sucking the, the river backwards. I mean, it, it is an ecological crime of, of intergenerational time frames. Pretty yeah. horrible. Natural gas is a product of fracking. That's how we get it. And, and um, yeah, it, it is a nightmare. We are going to, we're talking with Carl Meyer. And when we come back after this uh, short break, then we're going to talk about what is the status of the process of relicensing right now and what can listeners do to educate themselves and to be active in stopping this travesty. We'll be right back with Carl Meyer right after these messages. This is the Afternoon so Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. How much responsibility does the United States bear for civilian deaths in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria? Please join us when we speak with Asmat Khan, the New York Times reporter, the recipient of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting, and the author of the Civilian Casualties series in the New York Times. Asmat Khan will be with us in the studio Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. 
At American National, we understand the tried and true farm and ranch lifestyle, and what's important to you is important to us. You deserve an insurance plan custom made to meet all the specific needs of your agribusiness operation. American National offers flexible farm and ranch policies with package options to help better protect your livelihood. We're right by your side. For more information and to connect with a local American National agent, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. CNA is like a family you can trust that gives you hope and confidence that there is always support for various situations. They help dreams come true. Do you want to be a part of Center for New Americans? Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. Center for New Americans, with offices in Amherst, Northampton, and Greenfield. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back talking about the health of our beloved Connecticut River. There's such a resource for us in every way imaginable that a river could be for a region. And we're talking with uh, Carl Meyer, who is a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists, and I think he is the Lorax to the Connecticut River, in particular with the travesty that is the Northfield generating facility, Northfield Mountain. So, Carl, could you tell us what is the, you've described this relicensing process. Where are we at in this process? Well, we've been hanging on the, the cliff face for about, oh, well, two years. They keep, First Light keeps getting extensions from FERC, and they keep sort of dragging it on and saying no at the table. I'm sorry, FERC is the Federal Energy, Energy Regulatory. Regulatory Commission, yep. who's the ultimate arbiter, arbiter of whatever happens in this license, Right. So I didn't sign a confidentiality agreement. That's why I keep running my mouth about this stuff. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marine Fisheries, Mass Division of Fish and Wildlife, Mass DEP, the Watershed Council, they all can talk about it, but it's kind of a race to the bottom once again. Um, so the process was supposed I'm, to— I'm just going to interrupt you again, yeah, Carl, please just so do. we all understand please that do. the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission— its purported mission is to make sure that it it uh, promotes um, the generation of energy for all of our enormous needs in this country, uh, ostensibly in a way that's responsible, particularly with respect to environmental concerns. Has FERC been doing its job in this regard? Um, well, first of all, I, I would argue with you about enormous needs. We, we have we just have a whole lot of uh, enormous wants. Our needs have far outstripped, uh, our wants have far outstripped our needs. And, you know, we should, we should all be just sort of buckling down like this is the depression and pitching in with each other and stop using this. FERC uh, has to abide by certain things, but they, like their little, uh, little brother, little sister, ISO New England, they have been more of a, a sort of a marketing uh, arm of, of the big industries. You know, you're talking Eversource, you're talking Exxon, you, you know, you know, for... Uh, Do they ever say no? Just about never. I think, just I about think never. you looked this up once. I think they turned down one major pro project or whatever. So they are, they're, they're sort of a rubber stamp that, you know, they, they give a little, a little, um, a little lip service to greenhouse gases, but that's only in the last couple of years. And ISO New England sort of feeds them information about how necessary Northfield is, and Northfield is not necessary for the daily operation of the grid. It can be used in emergencies a couple times a year. But okay, so once again, ISO New England, 
For people who don't know, yes, what is it? The independent system operator. And you know what? I still cannot describe exactly who they are. They were described as, as a nonprofit. Um, basically, they're a marketing tool for National Grid Eversource. And, um, you know, all they sort of do out there is, is they, their responsibilities seem to be sort of facilitating the market so that we can overconsume our electricity and always promising us that there will be plenty of electricity there until all of a sudden things get a little tight. And, you know, and then um, Gordon Van Whaley, who makes $2.3 million the last report per year, as a nonprofit guy and never shows up in the news, you know, every now and then, oh, it's going to be a little tight this year. These, they are as guilty as sin. All of these, all, all of these regulators who don't do any regulator, they're facilitators, they're, they're, uh, what it codependents, you know, um, and they, they are just doing, in a time of climate change, you should be repairing ecosystems. You should be stopping this. You should be telling people, we are way out of budget on our energy use. I mean, this monstrosity, um, there's a group, I wanted to mention this, there's a group called um, Connecticut River Defenders. They're kind of this nascent group that came out of nowhere and have been sort of, they've been asking me questions and they've sort of gotten on board. They went down to ISO New England, had like the first time ever open meeting to the public. They ripped them a new whatever, you know, they ripped a new hole in their pants, their buzz, and just a couple of them, they, they just, and they are actually, they've asked me to speak at a rally, which is going to be this Saturday at 2 p.m. It's right up by Northfield at, the, at it's called the Mouth of the Beast Rally, is what they're calling it, or, you know, or don't, don't sign the river's death warrant. 2 p.m., public's invited. I think they said they're going to have cider and donuts, but uh, I'm going to be the speaker, and we're, we're going to talk about what this monstrous thing does. It's going to be at Northfield Mountain. Well, it's got, no, well, let me, let me be clear about this. Yeah. The intersection of Pine Meadow Road and Ferry Road, which is just about off Route 63, just about at the entrance of the Northfield Mountain Recreation Center. You just head opposite that down to the river, and there you end up just above the giant sucking intake, the killer intake. And if people are driving right now and can't write things down, how do they find out more information about this? Is they, do, they, do, they, do the defenders have a website? Do you have a website? The, my website, I, unfortunately, kind of went down with, with there was, a, there was a, an untimely death that, that I, I, and retrieving it is, is going to be a major thing if I do get it back. The Connecticut River Defenders do have a website. I'm not sure that you're going to have this there. So let me just reiterate. Anyway, can I just do that? 2 p.m. on Saturday, Route 63 in Northfield, just about opposite the entrance to the Northfield Mountain Recreation Center, is Ferry Road, either on your left or your right, depending on whether you're traveling north or south. Ferry Road is just a little spit of a road. It might be an eighth of a mile, sort of half dirt. It takes you right down to the river and what's called Riverview Picnic Area in Northfield, where the, where the riverboat used to go out of, but it's where the giant sucking killer mouth of Northfield just puts an end to an ecosystem. And this is the apart. opportunity for people to come and express their concern, <laughs> their outrage, and what else can they do to tell the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, that they're opposed to this thing? There should be some information at the rally. Um, the other thing to do, and I'm going to try to make this pretty simple, you need to remember this when you talk about Northfield. Here is the number, capital P-2485. That's the FERC number for this project. You can go to FERC.gov and say you want to file an e-comment, right? You have to remember, this is Northfield Mountain. You can say, do not relicense this beast. It's an intergenerational failure of a river system. But P2485, FERC.gov, e-comments, hydro relicensing, Washington, D.C. They'll give you a way to put your comments in there. It doesn't have to be. It's, it's a little bit tedious, but P2485, FERC.gov, Hydro Relicensing, Washington, D.C. And here's the really good news. If you forget or you didn't write it down and you want to hear Carl again, just go to Afternoon Buzz, go to our podcast for today, go about midway through the podcast, and you'll be able to get Carl giving you that information about the event on Saturday at 2 o'clock. Um, and uh, also with, with, about how to contact FERC and 
express your outrage about this, what did you call it? Monstrous ecological disaster. There you have it. Carl Meyer, thank you so much. It's an education every time you come and inform us about this. And thanks for your good work on behalf of our beloved Connecticut River. Everybody else, we're going to be back in a few minutes right after these messages with Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. We're going to talk science fiction today. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner, Fire Chief Robert Strayan, members of the Fire Station Building Committee, and other officials attended a groundbreaking ceremony today for the new $21.7 million fire station in Greenfield. The new station will include administrative offices, an emergency operations center, living quarters, bays for modern fire apparatus, and a small fire department museum. A temporary fire station located on Hope Street has been in operation since September 2021 for the new Greenfield Public Library building. UMass Amherst has been selected as a bike-friendly university by the League of American Bicyclists. The League is a grassroots advocacy organization that encourages better bicycling and protects the rights of people who bike. Recently, four-foot-wide bicycle lanes were constructed on the primary campus roadways of Massachusetts Avenue, North Pleasant Street, and Commonwealth Avenue to help promote safe bike travel. UMass is one of only eight universities in Massachusetts to receive the commendation that provides a safe, accessible campus. And flags were flown at half-staff today at all state buildings to honor U.S. Army Sergeant First Class Jeremy Bushy of Dalton. Dalton died suddenly on Sunday, October 30th at the age of 39. He was born in Northampton and graduated from Hampshire Regional High School in 2001. Throughout his career, he was sent overseas three times, once to Germany and twice to South Korea. His funeral was held today at Sluzniak Funeral Home in Northampton with full military honors. For the rest of today, mostly sunny, breezy, and cool. Highs 42 to 46. Tonight, mostly clear and cold. Overnight lows 18 to 24. And the outlook for Tuesday, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. Highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. The music of John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, made new by rising young jazz lioness Lakeisha Benjamin. Lakeisha Benjamin, a charismatic and dynamic young jazz sax player, brings her band to UMass November 17th. Benjamin's new album, Pursuance, The Coltrane's, is an intergenerational masterwork, taking you on a journey through the lineage of jazz. Lakeisha Benjamin infuses the jazz tradition with touches of hip-hop and soul, producing soaring sonic adventures and dance floor-worthy rhythms and grooves. For tickets, UMass Fine Arts Center website. Don't miss this exciting exploration of the living art form that is jazz. The Lakeisha Benjamin Quartet, Thursday, November 17th, 7.30, Bowker Auditorium at UMass. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Oh, it's Monday afternoon. Guess what we get to do? We get to hear Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. 
What do we got on, on tap for today, Megan? Well, my guest is Andrea Hairston. Um, and we're going to talk about books as we do. Um, um, Andrea Hairston is a science fiction and fantasy playwright, novelist, and scholar. Uh, she very well. She's in the process of retiring from Smith College. This is her last semester as a Smith College. Four professor. more weeks of teaching. Wow! Wow! When um, you are the Lewis Wolf Kahn, nineteen thirty-one professor of theater and Africana studies. Wow! I love. That's a title um, at Smith College and the artistic director of Chrysalis Theater. Um, and her plays and short stories and accolades are honestly too numerous for me to list because it would take up most of our show. Um, and I <laughs> want to focus a bit on your, your novels. Um, uh, Andrea has published four novels, Redwood and Wildfire, Will Do Magic for Small Change, title I love, Mindscape and Master of Poisons, which was on the Kirkus Reviews list of best science fiction and fantasy of 2020. And her next novel, Archangels of Funk, another title I love, uh, <laughs> will be published by Tor McMillan next year. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being with her, us today. Um, so, you know, although you're a, a Renaissance woman in terms of your writing, I would like to focus on, on the novels because that's kind of what we do here. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit about your most recent, not, not the one that you are currently writing, but the most recent published novel, uh, Master of Poisons. Oh, Master of Poisons. Wow. Well, I was writing that right before COVID. Uh, and uh, so uh, actually it started off as a novella. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Daniel Jose Older, who's a wonderful novelist, um, said to tour.com, uh, she can write a novella. So, you know, pitch something to them. So they said, yeah, okay, Andrea, write us a novella. And I was like, I don't write novellas. What? This is ridiculous. So I, I tried to write 40,000 words. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. Um, and so I asked them, well, look, it's turning into a novel. Will you take that? Mm -hmm. And they said, yes. I love it. <laughs> Which was really um, amazing. But it started because... I read an article in the Times about, you know, pieces of the Delta disappearing that were the size of, like, you know, Central Park. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by how calm and casual we were that, you Mis know, The Mississippi Delta, I think? Yeah, the yeah. Mississippi okay. Delta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th how casual. so ironic, Andrea. I don't know if you heard the previous uh, uh, section. Uh, no. segment was... Um, Carl Meyer, who's an environmental journalist, oh. talking about the demise of the Connecticut River because ah. of the Northfield um, uh, hydro generating station, which is really all about natural gas generation. Oh, so. my God. Wow. Okay. okay, so that's yes. exactly what I was, mm -hmm. you know, struck by. Like these amazing bodies of water, pieces of the earth disappearing, getting destroyed, and it just you know, and we kept going. We we seemingly, like, people were like, oh, that's terrible. Um, so then I said to myself, okay, so we're in denial. So I started with, like, we're thinking, well, we'll just keep going and we won't, we'll survive or, you know, I, I didn't know. So I wanted to ask myself, why wasn't I standing up and stopping and doing everything I could mm -hmm. to save the Mississippi Delta or the Connecticut River? Yeah. Um, so I asked myself that question. That's, like, how I started as a novelist. Um, like, you know, like, well, life goes on and the Delta's far away. And I had all these reasons. Uh, none of them seemed particularly good to me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I, I said, yes, but like, uh, you know, why? And then I realized how hard it is to feel, um, you know, a, a piece of land. Like if it were my mother, <laughs> then I'd be out there right away. Exactly. But, you know, but, but, you know, the subjectivity of the earth mm. um, was what I felt... Um, we, we've, you know, we've made the earth an object and it's not an animate living mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. that, you know, sustains us, um, which it is. But, which it is, yeah. Um, so I wanted to work on that. And so in Master of Poisons, I have like 10 chapters from non-human points of view. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I thought, well, you know, in order to feel it, we have to like have a relationship mm -hmm. to the interiors of the river. I think I have a point of view that that's, that's a river. Mm -hmm. I have uh, the, you know, the trees. I have ants. Oh, no, ah. not ants. I have bees. Okay. It's bees. Oh, yes. um, I have dogs, which I think we can feel. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I have dogs and goats. And so I really wanted to, in addition to having humans, um, 
you know, I wanted to have these animal characters. So once I had that structure and those thoughts, I was able to craft the story about someone trying to figure out how to save, mm -hmm. you know, various things, but was, you know, daunted by their own flaws, as well as the the apathy yeah. of uh the, the, you know, and then the greed and avarice of some yes. other people. So there was a lot of apathy and greed and avarice, and they, you know, just were going to exploit the moment, exploit the mm -hmm. land, exploit. So um, my characters have to wrestle with how to do something about that and what they need in order to change, you know, the story. Because the story is it's okay, basically. It, you know, it's just going to, or, or there's nothing we can do or whatever mm -hmm. the story is. Right, right. But how, so I wanted to ask, how can we change that story. And so that's what, it, and it definitely wasn't a novella. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, was able to figure that out for the characters. And it was actually very hopeful because I did a lot of research mm -hmm. on environmental you know, yeah. issues and also on indigenous to. wisdom and on um, uh, African um, spirituality and indigenous American spirituality in relationship to having, for instance, in the language, a notion of rivers as beings mm -hmm. or the animal people mm -hmm. um, so that the, the way we think of, you know, the objectified universe is not the same as everyone else all over the world. So and I think it helps to have your language helping you experience the mm -hmm. world in a different way. So I tried to put the, that in the uh, The pen is mightier than the backhoe, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I certainly I hope, hope so. so. Um, so what, what initially drew you to science fiction and fantasy as a writer, particularly at a time when you, you know, imagine when you started writing that there were not, and of course there still are not, um, there, um, enough um, women and people of color getting published in these, these genres? You know, I'm an old lady, so I watched <laughs> Star Trek. You know, I saw uh -huh. the original TV show when oh, I was 14. so many people. My family, you know, we, I came from a science fictional family, mm -hmm. so my parents watched Star Trek with me, oh. along with my brother. My brother was an incredible science fiction and fantasy fan, so he read, you know, everything, and since I was his little sister... I had to read everything yes, he read so he could argue with me about it. Um, and I would read anything. His friends mm -hmm. actually wouldn't read anything, so he couldn't argue with them about it, and he really liked to argue. So he would say, read this. So I was reading Isaac Asimov okay. because my brother said, read this. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, I read um, Heinlein. I read mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick because my brother wanted to argue with me about it. And <laughs> we went to movies, and we would argue with, you know, each other about that. Um, so, And he read comic books. He read anything. Mm -hmm. He became a newspaper editor. <laughs> um, so so I feel like I came from a science fictional community. I came from an African-American community in Pittsburgh in the 1950s, and my parents told me that I was going to college. No one had in our family had yet graduated from college, oh. so this was future thinking. <laughs> so you know, it seemed like, like, That seemed like science right. fiction. And yeah. all the people around us were like, yes, you will go to college. There, there weren't that many people around me going to college, mm -hmm. doing the things that my parents said I was going to do. And my brother was going to do them. So I feel like I came from that kind of family uh, and that kind of community where the future was going to be better. And we were all watching Star Trek, seeing in the future. The, you you could mm -hmm. see. I mean, it wasn't Star Wars because Star Wars at the time had no people of color, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, in the 70s. And this is the 60s. And, and Star Trek is presenting a future in which those things have changed and mm -hmm. people are doing all these things. So my parents were like, right, see, you, you can do that. So I, I thought I was going to be a physicist uh, oh, or a mathematician. Wow. Beautiful. Um, you know, so my parents were distressed when I became a theater person. But, <laughs> but you know, um, that's, that's what got me into... Uh, so I've always been into science fiction and fantasy. And in fact, I didn't think of it as anything Out special. of the ordinary. Uh, and yeah. in theater, it's just, you know, it's really whether it's a musical or straight play in theater, not whether that's, it's science fiction. Or that's, all, that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, and my guest is writer Andrea Hairston. Um, who, who are your literary influences, uh, besides the ones you've mentioned um, oh. that your brother um, got you reading? Oh, well, um, Alice Childress, who's mm -hmm. a wonderful, wonderful playwright and novelist. And I saw a piece of hers on uh, PBS when I was in high school, and I was just blown away. Um, and I, you know, my mother and I watched it together, and... Um, so we were like, oh my God, this is possible. Um, so I later meet Alice, but I mm -hmm. read all of her plays and her novels and she deeply influenced me. Um, she, she stands out <laughs> as, mm -hmm. as, as very, very big in my life. Um, 
And then, I mean, you know, I came upon Octavia Butler ah, yes. later in life. Mm -hmm. So by the time I get to Octavia Butler, people are saying, you should read Octavia <laughs> Butler. Um, so all of my theater friends, because I was writing science fiction, um, said, oh, read Octavia Butler. So it was such a relief to, like, read her work. And, and um, uh, Ursula Le Guin, mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I, you know... Started with one book, and then I looked up after I'd read as many as possible. So I think those are, like, really, and, and yeah, really, really major figures um, in how I could conceive of writing science fiction. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great place to take a break. Those are major figures in how Andrea Harrison can conceive of writing. Uh, Andrea is an African-American science fiction and fantasy playwright and novelist and professor at Smith, and we're going to take a break and be back with... Megan Zinn, the writer's block, right after this messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than pixels to know what it actually feels like? Maybe you could just lay on the screen and... Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Come to Talon Furniture and lay down on a Therapeutic. I'll leave you alone. You can see how you are together. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. I've been to the factory in Brockton. Yes, they're made by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Talon delivers and sets it up. We don't just drop a big burrito on your doorstep. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. The holidays, baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one -on -one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, this is Megan Zinn with Writer's Block, and my guest is Andrea Hairston, uh, novelist Andrea Hairston, and playwright and scholar. Um, and what do you, um, how do you start when you're writing a novel? Um, where, what do you start with? Do you have an arc of a story in mind? Do you start with a particular event or location or an idea you want to explore? Or does it vary? It varies. I'm absolutely open to whatever the the muse or the 
<laughs> like I wake up in the middle of the night and something has occurred to me and I write it down and then I wake up the next day and go, really? That's what you're going to do? <laughs> um, but I, I feel really, you know, it's often something, well, I, I mentioned the, the piece in the New York Times about the Mississippi Delta disappearing. It's often something that mm-hmm. I, I don't know it's going to be that. I just read it and I'm like, oh my mm-hmm. goodness. Uh, so, uh, or, you know, th- that piece also has a lot about bees and I've loved mm-hmm. bees my entire life. So I've been waiting to write something about bees. So it took the, the the Times article to finally figure out a way to get bees to be in the story in a, in a real way. So I think I'm I'm looking for the things that will organize my passions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I want to respond to the world. I want to respond to who we are trying to be, um, and I want to ask myself questions. So I, I mm-hmm. often have a lot of questions. So, you know, I, you know, I think that's what it is. I just realized. I, I start with a question. Oh, like, how mm-hmm. can this, that, who, mm-hmm. person, whatever, do whatever, or how can I, how can I, you know, wrap my mind around um, my current book, Archangels of Funk? I have a, uh, uh, the main character is trying to figure out what to do about her fear of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's afraid of the future. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look good. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> we all you are. know, oh my God, what, what can I do? Um, and she feels that her, her grandparents, they've faced greater odds. Yeah. So what's wrong with her? Why can't she like just face the odds? Of course, they probably were afraid too, but she doesn't think of that at the moment. Yeah. Um, just like they seem to do all these bold things and she had many more opportunities. So why is she afraid of the future? So that was my organizing mm-hmm. question, but that's not a story. So right. um, I have to, I actually wait for, okay, there's the question and here's some of the characters. Then I wait for basically the the world to tell me mm-hmm. who is going to be in the book. Yeah. So like my, once I have the question going, all of the things that happen next help me. Like I respond to something in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I respond to an event. I see a friend and they make a casual remark. Um, I play a piece of music and it moves me. So I, I'm not someone who plots out the story. Okay. You know, once I have the story, mm-hmm. then I have to go back and make sure it has a plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so I wait for the world to tell me the story I want to tell. I love that. Um, what, do you, what do you love about writing science fiction and fantasy, um, in this genre in particular? Well, back to the bees. Mm-hmm. I can get all the, like, geeky stuff that yes, I love yes. into the story. So I particularly um, enjoy um, – I was a math textbook editor – and one of the things that I had to do, I, I worked at Houghton Mifflin, and we had to come up with problem sets for to to explain um, abstract ideas. And I really loved coming up with a, a a problem set that people would have fun doing, and then be able to comprehend something abstract. So, and I was also I, I tutored well, like like a bee is traveling at fifty miles an hour on a train from Chicago. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you know what will light do in that train with the bee? Right. Yeah. Um. So I I really I, those kinds of 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 possibilities are there for me when I write science mm-hmm. fiction and mm-hmm. fantasy or. I like to think of a way out of no way. Um, so this oh, is, a, yeah. you know, it, it's like, again, using Einstein, um, he tried to imagine uh, riding on a photon. You know, that's an impossible act. But once he, he, he thought that way, he tried to embody that experience and then he could write his theories. Mm-hmm. Um, or Harriet Tubman imagined getting on an underground railroad and escaping. She'd never been free. Um, you know, there was no railroad and it definitely wasn't underground. Yes. So, you know, but the metaphor took her. So um, that's what I like about science fiction and fantasy. You can use metaphors to embody something mm-hmm. that then allows you to, you know, experience something that is impossible. Like, the, you know, the Einstein moment. It's impossible to ride right. out a photon. But it gives you insight that you didn't have. So that's what I like about it. And now I'm picturing genre. Einstein riding on a photon, and that's a fantastic image. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I wrote on a Fig Newton once. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me, um, my guest is novelist uh, Andrea Hairston. Um, t- tell me, like, what do you find most exciting about what's currently happening in science, in science fiction, speculative fiction, and fantasy? Um, well, I love the explosion of 
uh, the range of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking in the break about how when, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago, you could just read, you know, the same kind of author over and over. <laughs> yes. Um, the, the, the people were writing stories and they were out there, but they weren't getting published or they weren't getting known or they were doing plays like me in little small towns like Northampton. Um, but now we have access to one another. So what I'm really excited by is, that, is the range of different stories from all over the world where people, you know, wrestle with the impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, And it allows all of us to have insights that we just, you know, couldn't possibly have. Um, So I think it's a very exciting time when you have like Daniel Jose Older, um, you know, bringing in Santaria and all kinds of, of, you know, ideas about spirituality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into the books that he wants to create, or Neri Okorafor using West African um, storytelling traditions and ideas, but but creating her own on top of it, or or Cherie Renee Thomas, who is now the editor of um, Fantasy and Science Fiction, um, and she uh, created a, a an anthology called Dark Matter, and she had you know gathered all these stories from the African diaspora, oh, and good. now she's the editor of a major science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. magazine, and her interests are wide and ranging. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited by all the kinds of things that people are are creating um, and then sharing with one another so that our, all of us can be more creative. Right, right. And I love the description of science fiction as wrestling with the impossible. That, yeah. I think, really um, distills what is exciting about science fiction um, yeah. always. Um, so t- tell me, um, what what are you currently reading? What do you have, you know, on your proverbial bedside table? Oh, uh, well, right now, uh, since I'm re- I did a lot of reading, you know, like, before I was teaching at Smith. And right now I'm reading, oh, what is it called? The Extended Mind. So I read a lot of um, nonfiction. And this is about how the mind or the brain is beyond, you know, just the physical um, brain that we have in our, our, you know, heads, but really that we extend like right now, as I'm talking, I'm using my body to help me find the words that you can't see me, but I'm like gesturing. <laughs> yes, right. Our hands are very <laughs> expressive. So, so I'm trying to find the words and I'm trying to understand what I want to say. Um, so this book is really about how, you know, and I have these three wonderful people here, one who's completely silent, but all of them <laughs> adding to what I can think yeah. because they're here. So what I'm saying to you now is because my mind extended to all of these people. So that's what this book is about. It's a wonderful book. Tell us again, Andrea Harrison, what is the name of the book? The Extended Mind. I love that. Yeah. Um, and so my guest today is Andrea Hairston, and her most recent book is Master of Poisons, and sh- and next year she will be publishing Archangels of Funk. So look for that, which will be available from your independent bookstore, I'm I assume, yes. and or you can get your independent bookstore to order it for you. Yeah, we'll do Magic for Small Change. Just was reissued oh, just, last week. Oh, wow. and Broadside Books definitely has it if you're in Northampton. Good to know. Well, thank really you, thank you so well, much well, for being here. Well, I here. just have one very quick question. We only have about forty seconds to go, okay. Andrew. But but uh, as a professor, when you talk about this, the young subject in your book, who is thinking about grandmother, uh-huh. grandparents, and, and what their experience was. You've been teaching at Smith. Yeah. We have this age. These people who entered adulthood in, during a Trump era and yeah. climate yeah. and right. all these things. Has, has that changed in terms of their their literacy, their interests? In- uh, you know, all of us have, I, I don't know, Trump COVID brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think we're all reeling from those experiences, you know, of the last several years. Um, But what I find is that they are resilient, that they are Uh, ready, that if pointed in a a direction of openness, they open up. mm -hmm. If pointed in a direction of closeness, they close Close down. down, So I, you know, they are, they aren't, some of them aren't used to being in person with one another. (sighs) But once you do it, like that's the magic of theater, um, then, you know, the extended mind happens, right? Yep. We are smarter when we're together. Mm-hmm. And they, at first, one person wrote on a paper, I thought you were just saying crap to us uh, when you said we're smarter together. But wow, it's really true. Wow. <laughs> so, that is, well, that, 